Pastor Rob, welcome to our 1030 service. If you have a copy of the Bible, you can open up to Nehemiah chapter 9, where we are in the middle of a study. If you are, uh, weren't here in the last few weeks, we've been doing a study in the book of Nehemiah called Awakening. And if you have one of these, it's uh, in page 15. We created this guide to go through this series of messages. So if you have one, page 15, in a message titled, A Living Faith. A Living Faith. This book, maybe a way of a sort of reorienting us where we have been, is a book um, that's about spiritual renewal, really ultimately what it's about. It's why I called it Awakening. And if you remember, very quick uh, recap how it started, um, somebody whose life was um, a long way from this situation, who was not in uh, Jerusalem, was not in this dire situation, that is, the walls were broken down, the gates were burned with fire, the city of Jerusalem was sort of a shadow of what it once was. The guy whose name this book comes from, Nehemiah, he's in a very different place. He's in um, uh, Susa. His, his life is uh, doing very well. He has a very good job working for the, for the king of Persia. But in one day, his life changes. He's interrupted. And he's interrupted, and he has an opportunity to respond. You might say that's what I would think we all maybe are called to do as we do this study, but really as a church, to decide whether or not you want to respond to what God is, has put before you. It's sort of a calling, right? It's, a, it's an interruption of the status quo. And Nehemiah makes a decision that he's going to, you know, say goodbye in a manner of speaking to the, to the life that he had been living uh, and to make some very uh, big risks and take some bold steps of faith and go and lead this uh, process, which uh, many of you know was about really a capital project of rebuilding the broken walls of Jerusalem. But it's very important, I've said this maybe a time or two, that the walls were a means to a greater end. In fact, the walls, if you remember, if you've been reading this book, the whole project only took 52 days. It was not a sophisticated, long project. But the, the building of the walls served a greater end, and the end that it served was restoring the nation of Israel's missionary vocation, right? Its purpose was restored. Because when, back when the nation of Israel started a long time ago, back with Abraham, it was a very clear mandate. He, saw, he calls Abraham, who is this you know, sort of anonymous nobody, uh, in his very late in his life, and that's how God starts his calling of the people of God in the Old Testament. He says, listen, I'm going to bless you, right? Guy has no kids, it's just him and his wife. They're near the end of, the, of their lives. He says, listen, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a family. I'm going to make a nation out of you. Pretty bold promise to a guy who was pushing 100. But I'm going to bless you. But I'm going to bless those who bless you. And through you, through the people of God, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. The vocation given way back there in Genesis chapter 12 was that the people of God would take God's blessings, not hoard them to themselves, not create a nice boundary so that between the haves and the have-nots, but that the people of God would be a, a vehicle, a delivery system for the blessings to all of the world. They had failed to do that, and what Nehemiah is doing at, this literary, at the end of your Old Testament, is calling the people of God back to, you might say, it's a restart on their purposes to be the people who are to share the message with all the other nations of the world. Really, the church is the same thing. Why I wanted to study this book. Jesus uses this metaphor. He says, the church is like a city on a hill. 
right? That's what a church is. In a city on a hill has a purpose. He said, listen, it's a dark world, morally speaking. In the dark world, the church is supposed to bring, God gives us his light. I think the psalmist says, in his light we see light. God gives us light, the gospel, right? This is what this table represents. And through the light that shines in our life, we're supposed to bring light to the, to the dark communities around us, right? That's really the vocational purpose. The REACH initiative, quickly. You know, we've been talking about that, and this is a, we're getting ready for our one-year anniversary. It's fundamentally about people who are not here today. That is to say, people who didn't wake up knowing Christ as their, as their Lord and Savior. And what we want to do, part of this is capital. We just spent a couple million dollars over there. It's almost finished. We're going to do the same here and beyond. It's so we can have a, a, a church that is a city on a hill that, yes, captures people's imaginations, even in, a way, in, the, in the sense of this worship service, in a way that perhaps we, even more than we're doing today, we want to capture people's imagination. But ultimately, the sticking point, right? The real sticking point is not necessarily the environments. It's the faith, the living faith that they see in your life and they see in my life lived out day in and day out. And the great inspiration, back to Nehemiah, at the end of chapter 8, they built this wall. It was amazing. They were so encouraged that this discouraged, humble nation, God had done something through them. And by building the wall, he was saying, I'm throwing my lot with you. We can get back up and we can make a difference in the world again. That's what it was like. It wasn't just the, the wall. It was a nice you know, security boundary for the city. It represented the renewal of the purposes of God, right? It's like somebody who's been, who felt like their career was over, their marriage was over, and, God, and you get another chance. That's what the whole nation was getting here, right? It was a chance to be the people of God all over again. And at the end of chapter 8, we looked at this last week, if you were here, the people were so moved by the walls being finished that they called a special worship service. And they said to Ezra and Nehemiah, we want to hear the word of God. We, don't, we, want, we want to have a special outdoor worship service. And for two days, they were inspired and they came to tears. We looked at it. But here in chapter 9, where we are this morning, if you have a copy of the Bible, Nehemiah chapter 9, um, inspiration needs to be harnessed by the will, right? They need to commit to a different, to, they need to make a series of commitments that ultimately are going about living a different kind of life and being a different kind of church. And that's really where we are this morning as we look for application. Nehemiah chapter 9. And the first thing that you're going to see in this chapter that they need to do. How do you turn inspiration into um, you know, real uh, uh, change in your life? Real change in the life of a church. How do you actually change? And the first way you do that is you need to be honest about the sin in your life, right? That's where it starts. And that's where it starts for this community. Let's read verses, ready? I'm gonna do this uh, selective verse to see if I can get it right. Nehemiah 9, you can follow along, but if you have your Bible, 1 through 3, 6, uh, 9, and then 13, and then 15, 16, 30, and 31. Did you get all that? Probably not. <laughs> follow along as I read. Nehemiah chapter 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads in response to this worship service they'd just had. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They'd never had a service like this before. They stood where they were and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, right? Some people say to me, Rob, 
Shorten the sermon, right? Can you imagine? A quarter of the day. And they spent another quarter of the day in confession and worshiping the Lord their God, verse 6. Here, and, and then this is a long prayer. I'm just going to read excerpts. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens and even the highest heavens and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You want to change your life, you've got to begin with a new vision of God. That's what he's saying. Verse 9. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. Verse 13. You came down, this is the gospel, on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws, the word of God, that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good, verse 15. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and to take possession of the land, the promised land, and and had sworn by an uplifted hand to give them. But... They, our ancestors, here's the application, became arrogant and stiff-necked. It's an old way of saying prideful. And they did not obey your commands. Verse 30. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. That was the exile. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them. Or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, I just read a few verses. It's a long prayer. I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter. But really, what it is, is Nehemiah, as he's sitting here with these humble people, very humble crowd that are sitting around after the walls of Jerusalem. They're a shadow of what they once were. Most of them are very poor. There's not a lot of money going around. It's a hand-to-mouth economy. And they have enemies on all four sides. We talked about that. But it's a time of celebration. But really, this sermon that Nehemiah is giving, this prayer is really a sermon. And it's sort of the gospel as history. If you read the whole thing, he says, let me go over the history of all that brought us to this place. And he starts all the way back with Abraham. I didn't read it, but he's in this long prayer. And he says, listen, let me tell you the history of the people of God. The history of people of God is God calls people. And when he called Abraham, you should all see your call there. Because when Abraham was called, he was nobody special. He was an old man. He was out of gas. He was an anonymous nobody. And we're supposed to see ourselves there. And God said, I'm going to pick you, Deuteronomy 7, my paraphrase, not because you're good looking, not because you're smart, not because you're strong, not because as if I'm picking people based upon their pedigree and talents, I would pick you. I'm picking you for one reason, because I want to set my love upon you and I want to show to the world how I can demonstrate who I am through loving you. That was the whole point of the, of the people of God, and it still is today. He says it's a, it's a story of calling people. Then those people in this long prayer, what do they do? They get a calling, but they wander, right? In fact, they wander for 40 years. And if you really looked at the distance between Sinai, where they got the Ten Commandments, and the Promised Land, where they were going, it would take about 11 days to walk there. But instead of getting there in 11 days, they wandered, right? They had spiritual ADD as a people. And they began to look other places besides God for their needs. But they eventually got into the promised land. This prayer also talks about, but then once in the promised land, they possessed it, but then they were dispossessed of the promised land. That's why they ended up in exile. 
And, but what does that last verse that I read? Although they wandered, although they did not keep their commitments, although they broke the commandments, they broke the laws, they said, no, thank you. It says, although they didn't hold up their bargain, God held up his. And really, the whole story of the people of God, which is being summarized in this prayer, is this. Where sin abounds, that's the nation of Israel, that's maybe you and me, grace superabounds. That's the story of the entire Old Testament. And what Nehemiah is doing here is he's setting these people. They need a context, right? Especially people who have been defeated and demoralized. Sometimes you need to be able to see above the horizon. And all they can see is they live in a city right now that's barely inhabitable. They live in a city where people, most, the vast majority of people are dirt poor. They live in a city, if you've been following the study, where there's enemies on all four sides. It was not a very encouraging environment. It didn't really feel very inspiring. And Nehemiah says, listen, let me tell you the story of the people of God. It's a story of failure, but it's a story of a God who's very gracious. Where sin abounds, grace does uh, superabounds. And what he's saying is this. When the people of Israel came out of Egypt, it's a story just told, all they had was the clothes on their back. That was it. And you guys have barely uh, more than what they had. But just as God had a future for them, God has a future in you. And despite what you see around you people, that's what he's saying to this community, despite the fact that it looks like a very humble shadow of what it once was, your lives are not locked into the present, right? That's why he starts with God. Blessed are you, you alone are the Lord God. You made the heavens, you made the earth. You called Abraham out of nothing, and as you made something out of him, you can make something out of us. But see, this is the real challenge of faith. Many people believe, you might believe this in your daily life. You might believe this in your marriage. You might, we might believe this in the life of our church. We're locked into the present. But what Nehemiah is saying is you don't have to be locked into the present. God still has a future and a hope for you. God still has a plan for this nation, and God has a plan for this church, but the first step in the future is an honest confession of your sin. And the sin, if I can summarize it, it's in verse 16. I didn't, uh, 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 I did read it. I'm sorry, verse 16. But they, and our ancestors became arrogant and stiff-necked. If you read the entire Old Testament, including this prayer, and you'd say, what are the sins of the people of God? Why did they fail? There's a lot of them. But the one that stands out exponentially more than any others are these two words, arrogant and stiff-necked. It's essentially pride. It's people that say this. The people of Israel didn't fail because of their appetites, which some of them weren't good. They didn't fail because they skipped church once in a while, which they did. They failed fundamentally because of their arrogance and their pride, because they came to a place in their prosperity and said, listen, we can do this, God, without you. We don't need your, uh, thank you for your advice, thank you for setting us up, but we can do this Christian life without you. We can accomplish this without you. We can do this on our own. No thank you. And that attitude of independence, that attitude of pride and arrogance is ultimately what destroyed the nation of Israel, and it will ultimately uh, keep you and me back from being what God wants us to be. People and churches get stuck primarily for one reason. Why do we live locked in the present many times in our life or in the life of our church? It's because you're trying to do it in your own strength. You know what's mentioned here too? I didn't read it in verse 18. 
He says, I wanted you to follow me, but you made an image of a calf, right? They worshiped a calf. And sometimes when I read that, I go, who would do something that foolish? It seems a million miles from you and me that I would ever cast some, 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 uh, you know, some kind of, you know, object, right? And I, and I would, in this case, it, it was a calf, and they worship me. Think, that is so backward. That is so, you know, uh, a prehistoric. That is so, you know, basic. And who would ever do that? But let me tell you something, guys. They weren't worshiping the animal. They weren't, they weren't that unsophisticated. It wasn't the animal. It's what the animal represented. And what the animal represented in an agricultural society was their prosperity. See, what they were worrying, what they were worshiping was they said, listen, we've got this. We've, we know how to make money. We know how to build houses. We know how to have a, have, a, have, a, have, a, have a prosperous kind of life. We have it, and that's what we're going to worship. It's their own prosperity, their own intelligence. And if you think about that, it should hit home with many of us. Because the number one reason that my life at times is locked in the present where I think, you know what? I don't think God really can do anything more in this area of my life. The number one reason that you don't think, if you're honest, that you really believe God can do something different when your marriage or in the life of this church that you feel locked in the present is because you've forgotten how to live by faith. You've, you've become so used to just going as far as your faith will take, as far as your, your own wits will take you, as far as your own smarts will take you, as far as your own bank book will take you. You've gotten so, to living, so used to living that way, you don't even know what it means to live by faith anymore. And that's what happened to the people of God. And they figured when, when and, and Nehemiah is trying to snap them out of it, right? Trying to snap them out of it. I, I like you, have been, um, I don't know, sobered, and I don't know if disgusted is the right word, I mean, this, this, this Harvey Weinstein tailspin, right? You thought, gee, I, don't, I didn't think I was going to hear about that in church today. I see it every other day, right? And, you know, it, it, it's a sobering, uh, you know, Shakespearean kind of story. And, of course, there's all these other falling dominoes. And let me say this as you and I look and watch this unfold. Chances are most of us, men, I guess I'll talk to the men, that's not your problem. I hope it's not your problem. That's not my problem, the Harvey Weinstein story. But I will say this. It ought to be a morality tale for every single person in this room. Okay, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I don't know what your problem is. I don't know what your weakness is. I don't know what your hang-up is. But I'll tell you what, if you think you can do life on your own, you think you can do it without God, whether it's the integrity of your marriage or integrity of your job or sharing Jesus with, with, with people who don't know him, you're a fool. And you're going to wake up someday and say, oh my God, what has happened to me, right? Without him, the Bible says, we can do nothing. But with him, we can do more than we ever imagined. Number one, we need to be honest about the sin in our life. That's what this table's about in a few minutes. Second, you see in this, in this example, we need to get specific about the commitments of our faith. See, this is where the rubber meets the road for us, too. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9 is, you know, we're, we're, we're very good at making general commitments, right? I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to tithe I'm going to share my faith. I'm going to, you know, uh, 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 I'm going to do better. But we don't really get very specific. And this is what this community does, and I think it's what we should do. Verse 38. We need to get specific about the commitments. In view of all this, this long prayer of confession, right? Three-hour confession service. 
We are making a binding agreement. And we're putting it in writing, right? I dare you to do that one. And our leaders and, our, and the Levites and the priests are affixing seals to it. They're going to make an actual commitment. They weren't asked to do it. They're just doing it. Now look at just some of the details. Verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us. That's pretty specific. And take their daughters for our sons. And when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. That's another law they were breaking. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land, a Sabbath of years, to let the land um, rest, and we will cancel all debts. Okay? What do they do? Three things, very quickly. They're only mentioned this bad. The only, those are the only things that are mentioned except money and, and tithing. We'll get to that in a second. The only three things that are mentioned is don't marry people who aren't Jewish, honor the Sabbath, because they weren't doing that either, and um, cancel people's debts every seven years. It's a compassionate thing. Now, you might say, what, what, uh, what, of what significance, Rob, can those things possibly have to you and me? You and I are free within the, in, in the Lord, so to speak, to marry people of any race. Uh, it, we don't live in that. The church isn't bound by that, right? We're not, we're not asked to only marry people uh, of our own race. And we don't celebrate the Sabbath, right? That's the, it's been liberated. It's not part of the new covenant that we live in. And most of us aren't farmers. So how, well, what, are, what is the point? What is the application? These three things that are mentioned, a lot of things could be mentioned. But they're mentioned because they were fundamentally, think about this for a minute, they were ways in which, it's different for us, that the people of God, their faith was identified in the everyday world, right? In other words, their marriages, their families were the ways in which the people around them understood that they were Jewish people, right? When Nehemiah comes back, and we'll see this in a couple weeks when we finish this study, after 12 years break, he comes back. And he finds out that many of the Jews that made these great promises, they went off and married people from, other, from the other nations. And he said, I came back and half of the children, he brings all the children together like a children's sermon, half of the children didn't even speak Hebrew. They didn't know anything about the God of the Old Testament. See, in this case, mixed marriages meant for them a loss of their faith. And let me tell you why the Sabbath was important, Right? The Sabbath was important because the people of Israel for 400 years worked seven days a week. They worked in a hand-to-mouth economy that said, if you don't work, you won't eat. And when God instituted the Sabbath, it was a, it was a commitment to say, as the people of God, we are saying, we're, not, we're, we're saying no to the rat race. And every seven days, we're gonna, when people are running off to go make their money and go to the stock market and, and go, to, go to wherever they go, the Jewish folks are going to say, we're staying home. We're going to take a breath. We're going to have a family time because our lives, our security, our well-being is not tied to the world's value system because we have a God who takes care of us, who meets our needs. That was the purpose of the Sabbath. And when you think about just those two things, right, the quality and, and, and character of our own families that we live out, even though ours is, it's applied a little bit different for us, but how people see your family life, how they see your home life, and whether or not they see that you serve a God who meets your needs. I can look at Liz and Robert and say, listen, I know this couple. And yes, they both have jobs, but you know what? They're not slaves to those jobs. They're not slaves to this economy. And if they lose their job, they got a smile on their face because their heavenly father meets their needs. Do people say that about you? Do people say that about me? They stop saying it 
about the people here, right? Now, what does it mean for us? What does it mean to follow Jesus, right? How do we live out our faith, verses 30 through 32? What does it mean? What it means to follow Jesus does not mean that you literally follow him. What do I mean by that? It doesn't mean that you ought to be a carpenter. Boy, if I had to be a carpenter, I'd be in deep trouble, okay? (laughs) Really. I'd be in deep trouble. Uh, It doesn't mean that you should never own a home. Jesus never owned a home, remember? Uh, You know, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So what does it mean to literally follow Jesus? It means that we have to move from knowing how Jesus lived, we study his word, and then moving from how we know he lived to how we presume he would live if he was walking in our life, right? That's what it means to follow Jesus. How would, you know, what would Jesus do kind of a thing? That's what it means. And when you and I begin to live more that way in our homes, in our offices, if we begin to really live the gospel out, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? I think what people around you will see, will, that will capture their imagination. It's a living faith, really, that people are looking for. And when they see it in you, I think God will do amazing things. I heard this preacher say this. Let me give this to you really quick. This guy who, very famous preacher, if I said his name, uh, he pastored a church, does pastor a very big church in Dallas, and I used to live a short hop skip from this church, and I hardly ever listened to him, but I just was listening to him in the last week or so, and he said something that hasn't left me, I think applies here, making commitments specific. And he said, listen, I think we ask God to do things that he doesn't do. One of the problems with our faith, why we might feel stuck in our faith, why sometimes we feel stuck in, in the life of the church, we're not moving, we're not growing, whatever, is because we're asking God to do things that God doesn't do, so therefore God's not doing them in your life. And I thought, what is he talking about? And he said this, he said, maybe you've heard this, he said, God doesn't make furniture. I thought, what does that mean? He said, God doesn't make tables. And God doesn't make chairs. He said, God makes trees. Okay? And then he says to you, listen, I want you to get on your knees and pray. It's not about you, it's about me. And I want you to mine these promises and I want to exercise some faith and I want you to take these promises and I want you to go out with the trees that I've given you and I want you to build tables and chairs and reshape the world in my, in my image. That's what you're doing. And he said, listen, we've got too many people that are praying, asking God for things that he doesn't do. And see, when you see, about, when, when it talks about being specific about the commitments of your faith, I want you to think about Nehemiah, who's our model. In Nehemiah chapter 1, we ought to, we ought to, we ought to obey the commands of God. And there may be, there may be things that you're not, you're, you're openly disobeying. And I think you ought to care about that. Some of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to know what it means, what are the commands, what are the teachings, are you living them out, Right? And where you're struggling, are you looking for grace and forgiveness in your life? But what it means to be a follower of Jesus is not simply the X's and the O's of commands. It's not simple compliance to commands. It's also claiming promises. The book of Nehemiah opens. It wasn't a command. Yes, he said, God, forgive me and my, and my father and, I, and all of us for disobeying you. But what really got this story going was the claiming of a promise. Because Nehemiah goes back and says, listen, we've messed up. We're in exile for our own reasons. We're at the bottom of the, uh, the farthest corner of the earth. But you said, he went back to the trees. And he said, if in this situation, we'll turn our hearts, we'll be honest about the sin in our lives, we'll simply put it before you, 
He said, if we're willing to do that, you said you'd take us from the farthest corners of the earth, from the farthest place where we could be, and you will reestablish us. And not only that, he said, open wide your mouth and I will fill it, and I will pour out a blessing on you that you can't handle. And Nehemiah got a hold of that, right? Do you get a hold of that, right? I mean, there's so many promises I could go through them. I mean, Jesus, he said this, if you say to this mountain, you, you know, he's know this one, pluck up and be cast into the sea, it will be done if you have faith in me. Now, Jesus wasn't literally talking about mountains, right? I mean, in the sense of what would be the point? What he was saying was the impossible situations in your life where you feel like I'm stuck in the present. The future's never going to be anything other than an extension of the present. I don't know what that impossible... For some of you, I know this. You're in a, you, you feel like your marriage is over. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. That's the mountain. Some of us think, you know what? As I think about my, my own extended family, my friends, some people that I've known for years that, that, that won't give me a, a five minutes on the gospel, and I think they'll never open their heart. They'll never change. You know? Maybe they will. Right? That's a mountain. And Nehemiah was willing to do that. Are you willing to do that? Am I willing to do that? This is what it takes if we really want to move forward. Let me tell you, the biggest winners in the kingdom of God, the biggest winners, if I can use that metaphor, it's not the most talented people. It's not the people um, who have all the right answers, right? Some, some of the reason people aren't here on a Sunday morning is they think that what it means to be a Christian, I've said this before, but it's worth restating, that you know, Christians are people who have all the right answers. Christians are people that are a little bit better than everyone else. Please tell me that you know that's not what the message of the gospel is, right? Okay? That's not what it is at all, right? God chose Nehemiah. God chose Abraham. God chose the young kid David. God chose the crazy apostle Peter and on and on. He chooses the least of these things, the things that, 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 that no one else would choose to demonstrate his love. This is grace. This is the gospel. And he'll do the same thing in your life and he'll do the same thing in my life. Right? if we're open to it. The biggest winners are not the people with the most talent or the most answers. It's the people who are foolish enough, who are crazy enough to believe in the promises of God. That's what, the, that's what he's saying. That's what Nehemiah did. That's what you can do. That's what I can do. That's what we can do as a church. Last thing in this passage. We need to be faithful in our support of the ministry. Now, this is a whole sermon in itself. And the elders will say to me, Rob, that should have been the whole sermon. But anyway, you're going to get a minute, okay? Uh, verse 32. He spends two verses talking about the disobedience and lack of um, faithfulness in the outside world. He spends eight verses. I'm just going to read three of them when he's talking about supporting the house of God. We assume the responsibility... For carrying out the commands to give a third of the shekel each year for the service of the house of God, right? Verse 37. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priest, to the first, ground of, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all of our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns we work. Verse 39. The people of Israel... 
including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary and the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. Okay? In eight verses, I only read three of them, he says eight times the phrase house of our God. I think he's making a point. That yes, they were, their marriages had no longer been a witness. They were no longer, uh, they, they, they went back to seven days, they went back to the rat race and they'd lost that witness. But perhaps even more than that, they'd complete, the, their priority, say the priority was the first cut comes to the house of God. And you might say, oh, church always talks about money. It's not about the church as much as it is about God. Then once we get your money, then we got a big responsibility of spending it the right way. But on your end, okay, it's about honoring God, putting God first. Because when God is not first and God becomes, as it did for Israel, last, let me tell you what, he ends up not getting anything. And when it's everybody's responsibility, it's nobody's responsibility. And he spends eight verses saying to these people, and then he's, and, and look how detailed, the, the olive oil, grain meal. He even talks about, I didn't read it, the, the, he, he says, these are the days of the week you need to bring wood in for the sacrifice, uh, altar for the sacrifice, right? gets very specific. Let me, let me say something very quickly. Not because I need to and, and it helps me or it doesn't help me because I want to be faithful and I want us as a church to be faithful. We have about 1,100 giving units in this church. But you know what? I mean, there's more people than that, but that's how many giving units. But I know this. Some of those, maybe they give three times a year. They give one. I don't know, if, you, if, you, if you give once and we have your name and we send you a thing, we can consider you a giving unit. But I know this. Forget about the, those who aren't the 1,100. Even if those 1,100, and I'm one of them, if those 1,100 just gave the tithe or the equivalent, New Testament equivalent, right, whatever God's called you to give, whatever man has uh, uh, committed in his heart to give, we would have more money than we know what to do with. You'd never hear it have to meet. We, we wouldn't need a capital campaign, right? We wouldn't need it. And when it comes to the REACH initiative, some of you don't know what that is, but it's above and beyond giving, and it's uh, to... to, to you know, do what they're doing here to tune up the old place and, and sort of expand this place to reach a new generation. 454 of you have said, I'm doing that. And some people say to me, as we're talking about going forward, they say, Rob, I'm already doing my uh, giving and I've done the above and the beyond. I know you guys are talking about doing more. I don't think I can do anymore. What I want to say is, take a breath. Thank you. Because if we're going to do this, it's not going to be on the backs of the people that are already giving. It's those maybe who aren't giving anything, right? You need to get in the game. You need to get in the game. All of us do. If we really want to see God do something amazing in the life of this church. Now, I want to close this service with this table. But before we do that, it's going to take a few minutes. I want to give us just maybe two minutes, maybe not even two minutes, to do some corporate confession. Now you're thinking, oh my gosh, I brought my friend to church today. Relax. <laughs> Not going to talk out loud here, okay? Just as a congregation, what Nehemiah did in chapter 1 is, he, I'm sure he confessed his individual sins, but there was a moment where he confessed the sins for the nation, if you remember it. He said, God, forgive us for our sins. And I want us just to take a couple minutes before we take this table, which represents uh, the sacrifice of Jesus, right? 
what God has done for us. I want us to, 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 to do some corporate confession. What might we need to confess as a church? Let me give you some very quick examples. Love one another as I have loved you. Right? That's for all of us. In other words, do you love the other people in this room, in this community? Forget even non-Christians. In the manner that Jesus loved you, or do you fall short? Do I fall short? Do we fall short? Do people say, I'd come to your church, but the people that go there aren't very loving? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Are there people that you know in this church? Maybe they're not your type of people. Maybe they're not your race of people. Maybe they're not your style of people. They're hurting and they're broken. And, they, and, and the Bible says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law. Maybe we haven't done a good job there. Let me tell you something. I mean, I'm, I'm older than a lot in here and younger than some, and, but I've lived long enough to say, what in the world is going on in our country, right? I thought we'd made some progress in my lifetime, nothing to do with me, in, let's say, racism, right? right? What the 60s and the civil rights movement, and I mean, long, far from perfect, but I, I feel like we're, we're, we're sliding back in the other way. Right? It's unbelievable. What's going on? The tribalism. And, and, and maybe, maybe uh, the, it needs to start here. Maybe we got some confession to do. Maybe we need to, we need to work harder at it as a church. How about marriages? Back to the text. Right? How about families? Do people look at our families, our marriages, and say, not we're perfect, but there's something unique there. Right? that was ultimately, that's the whole purpose of marriage. It's why it's mentioned here. It's why Paul elevates it in Ephesians 5. It's supposed to be a reflection of the, of the love of God. Maybe, how about our obedience to our primary calling? What were the walls all about? Restoring the vocation. The mission of the church is simple as pie. You could, you could tattoo it on your arm. Don't do it, but anyway. Uh, it's making disciples and sharing the gospel. Do you do that? Do you even think about it? Do I even think about it? Sharing the message of God's love and forgiveness with people who don't know it. Maybe we need to confess there. So I'm just going to pray for us. I'm going to give you guys literally 60 seconds, just in the quiet of your own heart. You may have things on your heart. Join me as a congregation, and let's, let's try to corporately confess before we take this table. Let us pray.